Good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Hey, before I get into today's message, just want to put a little plug in. Next Sunday, in case uh, this is snuck up on you, next Sunday is Father's Day. Did you know that, Joe? You did know that. So, And I'm not saying that so that kids in here are paying attention. Or I'm saying I got an announcement to the dads that are in here that some, um, and perhaps David would be one of them, um, on Sunday morning picks out the shirt he's going to wear to church, and then he gets vetoed by his wife. And she goes, no, you are not wearing that to church. <clears throat> so, in view of that, to honor all dads, next week, it's dads, wear your favorite shirt. There are no vetoes. Okay, you got that? Don, you got that? Amen. All right. So, uh, so we're going to see what that leads to next week, but... Yeah, just in honor and all dads, let's uh, wear our favorite shirts next week. Uh, but please do wear a shirt. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you go out and you plant a pear tree, you can stake it up and you can water it and you can throw a little bit of fertilizer around. And that tree is going to branch out with time. And it's going to send forth roots. And one day you're going to go out and you're going to see pears on that little tree you planted. Because that's what pear trees do. If you go out and you plant an apple tree, you can stake it up and you can water it. Throw a little fertilizer around. And after it kind of branches out, sends down roots. There will come a day you'll walk out and you'll look at that apple tree and lo and behold, there's going to be apples on that. And there's a very basic reason why. That's what apple trees do. There's a very basic rule of thumb. It's one that we all know how it works. The Bible even references it as well. For example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 44, it says, Every tree is known by the fruit it bears. You do not pick figs from thorn bushes or gather grapes from bramble bushes. Every tree is known by the fruit it bears. And here's the thing. It even goes, this principle even goes beyond trees. In the final chapter of what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made this comment. And we're going to be looking at this verse and the preceding verses here in a few minutes. But for right now, we'll just look at verse 20 in Matthew 7, where he said, Just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. So this is a principle that goes beyond uh, just involving trees. Let me give you a little bit of a glimpse as to what some of this fruit can look like, okay? We're just going to, for a moment, take, take a glimpse at this. We'll come back to this a little bit later in the message. It's a classic verse, and unfortunately, it's a verse that people sometimes have 
reacted strongly enough to what verses 8 and 9 say that they end up misunderstanding what verse 10 is saying. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. In other words, salvation is not a result of you. It's not a result that of, of you rose to the occasion. You achieved enough. You did enough. No, that's not it. It's by grace we have been saved through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And so a lot of people take that and they really run with it and say, we are not saved by works. We're not saved by good works. And they really pound away and preach away on that message. And I mean, it's valid. It's true. We're not saved by works. However, let's not just leapfrog right over the top of verse 10 because verse 10 helps put in perspective good works. It says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, what this passage is making very clear to us is we are not saved by good works. But in the very same breath, it's saying, oh, but we are saved for good works. Yeah, so it's, it's, let's not dog on good works. Let's not kick it to the side and say, well, that's not needed in a Christian life. And it's just like, okay, well, that's not very biblical to take that approach. There is a place for good works. It's just that it doesn't save us. We're not saved by, we're saved for good works. Here's another translation on the verse 10. It says, it is God himself who has made us what we are and given us new lives from Christ Jesus. And long ages ago, he planned that we should spend these lives in helping others. This has been God's plan all along. That this is the kind of fruit that he, he's wanting to see in our life. That we're others oriented. That we're helping others. That we're sensitive to the needs that surface around us. Here's the thing that, that I, I find this so cool. Peter he was called um, to go talk to a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And some of you will remember this. It's recorded in Acts chapter 10. I'm not going to go into all the details of, of uh, why this was kind of a big deal because Cornelius was a Gentile and, and all of that. We, we won't go down that road. But, but the fact is, Cornelius had sent for Peter. Peter ends up going to Cornelius Cornelius is wanting to hear the message of Jesus. And, and, and here's one of the key factors in all of this. It has now been nine years, maybe ten years, since Jesus died on the cross. The crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the resurrection appearances, all of that stuff happened nine or ten years earlier. Okay, so we have all this passage of time and now Cornelius has sent for Peter to come and share, share the news about Jesus, knowing full well that Peter knew Jesus himself personally. Here's what Peter says to Cornelius. Oh, by the way, that's your main point. Check out Peter's memory of Jesus's life. Here it is. 
You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Okay, he's partway done. Here's the, the real kicker here. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. All right, so here Peter is. He's nine or ten years later after, you know, his time. He had spent three solid years with Jesus, and he was there and witnessed the resurrection of Christ and all of that. Cornelius is asking. Peter is touching on, you know, some of the things, you know, as far as the crucifixion. He referred to that on the previous slide. As far as the resurrection, that's on the slide that's on the screen now. As far as the resurrection appearances, he refers to that too. But, but here's the thing. What was the very first thing that came to Peter's mind when he was asked about Jesus? Share with me about Jesus. The very first thing, it was on the previous slide. It's not a naturally an eye-catcher sort of thing. Here it is. This is what he said about Jesus. He went around doing good. Now he talks about the crucifixion, which is some pretty big stuff there. He talks about the burial and the resurrection. He goes on and talks about the resurrection appearances. But the very first thing that came to Peter's mind when he was reflecting back on Jesus is that he went around doing good. You know, on the surface of that, there's nothing flashy about that. Not compared to the other things. There's nothing sensational that you would expect that Peter, having had spent three years with Jesus, he would have had a lot of stuff to draw upon that would have been sensational. But instead, this is what he comes up with. He went around doing good. This is how Peter remembered Jesus. If you spend any time at all in the Gospels, you know that Jesus was devoted to doing good. That that was not just something he did now and then. That was something he did with regularity. Now, he had his ultimate purpose and mission, and that was to go to the cross and to die, because knowing full well, he needed to do that to rescue you from your sin and to rescue me from my sin. So Jesus had a very clear mission for coming into the world, and nothing was going to detract him from that. But the reality of the matter is, on the path, on the road, leading to Calvary, Jesus did a whole lot of this. He went around doing good. When he saw people that were hungry, he did what he could do to address that need. When he saw people who were a part of society's outcasts, people that were kicked alongside the road, that were begging when they heard Jesus coming along with a big crowd, Jesus, have mercy on us. And what did the crowd say? Shut up. You know, be quiet, don't bother him. What did Jesus do? He stopped everything, he went through the crowd, and he personally addressed them. 
that's because Jesus went around doing good. He was feeling people's needs. When he ran into lepers, he didn't go out of his way to walk around lepers. That was the common thing to do back then. Not Jesus. He went up. He touched lepers. He was showing people that they valued. He was giving people hope. He was focused on people and on their needs. And he devoted himself doing what it took to help meet those needs. And after having spent three years with Jesus and seeing that day after day after day, that was the first thing that popped into Peter's mind when he was talking to Cornelius. Oh, you want me to talk to you about Jesus? He went around doing good. That was the first thing that came to his mind. Now, I'm going to share you know, something with you here that, uh, um, you know, that, that I, I, think, I think this is pretty cool. And I forget how many years ago I first ran across this. It wasn't too many. It was seven or eight years ago, maybe, um, when, when I first saw this. Um, but let me preface it by saying that in the first century, Greek was a universal language. All right? It's whether you lived in Israel, whether you lived in Rome, or whether you, it didn't matter. Any place that was a part of the Roman Empire, when Rome conquered a country, they had a few basic rules they laid down, like taxes. That was one of their, their basic rules that was required of the people that lived there. But another one of the basic laws that they laid down is that you had to make Greek a language that everyone is taught. And they did that in Israel. They didn't care if they continued to, to you know, speak Aramaic and stuff. They didn't care. You could keep your native language. That was fine. They didn't have any problems with that. But you need to now be teaching people Greek. It was important to the Romans that for trade purposes and more, that there would be a universal language that anywhere and everywhere in their empire, people could communicate with one another. And so, so Greek became a thing in Israel after Rome came in and invaded the place. Now, the interesting part of all of this is that the Romans, they would get a little bit confused sometimes when they were learning some of the details about one of the conquered lands, in this case, Israel. They started hearing about this population of people that was popping up, not just in Israel, but beyond Israel, called Christians. And, and the interesting thing about that is they, they weren't totally familiar with that term. The word is Christos in the Greek, and it means anointed. Literally, that's what it means, the anointed one, which is rich in meaning as far as anyone that has any kind of Bible understanding, Christians or Jews. Um, it's rich in meaning, and that's how Jesus was referred to as the Christ. And we all get that. But the Romans, this was kind of a new concept. And so this word Christos wasn't really a word that they used very much. And so they would mistakenly use the word Christos, because that was a word that they would use 
fairly frequently. Here's what the words look like. When you transliterate the Greek letters into English letters, this is what you end up with. And as you can see, they're almost spelled identically. In the Greek, an E makes a long A sound, okay? So, so the way these are pronounced is Christos and Christos. And so when someone would refer to um, Christians, the, the ones who are followers of the anointed one, you know, being Jesus. The Romans would actually inadvertently refer to the ones who are followers of the Christos ones. And who exactly were they describing there? Here's the definition of those words. Christos means kindness. And so, so when Romans were referring to Christians... They were actually talking about the kindness people, people who were followers of kindness. You know, in some ways, that is actually the way it probably should be. I mean, we should be known for our faith in Christ, absolutely, no doubt. We're known for our faith in Christ, but we should also be known for our acts of kindness. And this is a concept that clearly is supported in Scripture. Titus is a really small book in the New Testament. It's only three chapters long. But the theme, it doesn't even take ten minutes to read through Titus, less than that. Um, but what, you'll pick up on the theme right away. It's all about kindness, doing good deeds, helping people. That's, that's the thing It just keeps coming up. Over and over. And in chapter 3 of Titus, you see this verse. For our people must learn to help all who need their assistance. That their lives will be fruitful. This, this is part of what Paul was driving home to, to uh, the younger preacher, Titus. And so that was a big part of his theme. And so, on the one hand, I say that when Peter was being asked about Jesus, his memory immediately took him to say he went around doing good. Well, the point of the matter is, as you look through the scripture, is our lives should look similar to that. We should be doing the same thing. This is something that the Bible teaches. Let me read this passage that we read last week that is the foundation of this series. John 15. Listen to these words and while I'm reading this, tune in to every time you hear the word fruit being referenced. Every time you hear the word fruit. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is Thrown away and withers, such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. 
If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. It'll be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I just read eight verses. The text actually goes longer than that. The extended teaching goes all the way down to verse 16 or 17 um, on this occasion. But in those eight verses that I read, seven times the word fruit is mentioned. That's almost one time for every verse. So it kind of gives you the impression that Jesus is trying to emphasize something. Now, if you go on down further in verse 16, you see fruit being mentioned again. So there's like eight times actually that fruit is being mentioned. But, but it does seem like Jesus is trying to make a point. And isn't that the way we operate? Whether we're talking to our spouse or we're talking to our kids, what do we want to do if we want to make sure they remember what it is that we're saying? We repeat it. We say it, and we say it again, and we say it again. And of course, if you've got a thick, scold husband, you say it again and again and again, okay? You repeat it multiple times. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. And the point that he is making is that God wants us to bear fruit. That's what verse 2 says. But he goes beyond that and he says, wait, now you are to bear much fruit. And then it's like before he's done talking about it, he goes, oh, um, you should bear fruit that will last. And it's like a progressive thought here that he's taking and he's really running with. Now, I can stand up here today and I can say clearly, I can say unequivocally, I can say without any hesitation, having a relationship with God involves bearing fruit. And I can say that without any doubt. I mean, I could do that just based on John 15 alone. But I've studied this enough and I've seen all these other passages. It's all over the place. That this is God's will. A relationship with the Lord involves bearing fruit. Not only bearing fruit, but God wants there to be fruit to the point that he is even willing to prune us. We talked a little bit about that last Sunday. Verse 2 references that. He's willing to prune us for what purpose? So that we might be even more fruitful than what we would be otherwise. Now, why is there such an emphasis on fruit? And being fruitful, besides the fact that we are more Christ-like when we're bearing fruit. I mean, that, that's the obvious thing. We are, we are to be like Jesus, right? And so, so bearing fruit, Jesus went around doing good. So, so we should be going around doing good. Okay, well, that, that, that's the obvious answer to this, but, but there's actually more answers to this. Why so much emphasis on bearing fruit? Let me tell you three things. Number one, found within our text in verse 8. And that is, bearing fruit glorifies God. It says in verse 8, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Not only does it serve as evidence that you are a follower of Christ, but it glorifies God when you bear fruit. Now, in some respects, you might think, well, if I'm bearing fruit and I'm doing good deeds and I'm helping people in need, 
you know, and people are, you know, impressed and benefited from that. Doesn't that kind of draw attention to me? It might a little bit in the short term, but in actuality, you know, people just aren't used to seeing that, you know, in such a sacrificial sort of fashion happening. And so people might be looking at you, might be looking at you harder and closer, but what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure you out. Why does this person behave this way? Why does this person go out of their way to help others? They're trying to connect the dots. And in, in, uh, in, in the result of all of that, they end up putting two and two together and they realize it's because of the relationship that they have with God. It's the difference that God is making in their life. And that's where the glory goes to God. Eventually, the glory, the attention, when we do good, when we reach into people's lives and we help them and we, we address their felt needs that they're struggling with in their life, you know, God is the one who eventually is going to receive the glory from that. And so that's why this is being emphasized. That's one reason. Now, there's another reason why it's being emphasized, and that is that bearing fruit is evidence of repentance. This was an important concept that John the Baptist taught. You remember John the Baptist? He was the one that was dressed in that itchy uh, clothing made from camel's hair and had the weird diet of of honey and and uh, locusts and and all. Well, he he was he was here to kind of blaze a trail for the coming Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord. His message was a message of repentance, and people were going to him out out in the wilderness, and he was baptizing them in this baptism of repentance. And uh, and there were some religious leaders and all that kind of got caught up in this because they didn't want to get left out. I mean, this was the new thing. This was, you know, the thing a lot of people were talking about. And so they wanted to be a part of it, too. So they were going out with these big crowds of people. And John was kind of calling them on it. And that's what we read here in in Luke chapter three. It says this. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, and that goes on and says that from a pile of rocks, God can make children for Abraham. You know, so, so you know, don't, just because you're a part of the bloodline from Abraham, that doesn't mean anything special. That's, that's what John is saying there. What the emphasis here is John is saying, you need to show it. You need to prove it that you really are repenting. Repenting is something that goes on on the inside of us. It not only involves feeling sorry for our sin, but it also uh, involves a decision, a deliberate decision to avoid sin and to go a different direction in our life. But repentance is an internal thing that happens here and happens here. But what John is saying is that, yeah, when that is happening, there will be evidence in your actions, in the way you talk, in the way you treat other people. There will be outward evidence of that. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, show evidence that your repentance is true. It is genuine. And so this is one of the reasons that 
that bearing fruit is emphasized in the Bible because that does serve as evidence that an internal change is happening in a person's life. If that internal change happens, there's going to be an outward manifestation of the inward change that is happening. Another reason why this is being emphasized so much is that bearing fruit is the mark of a genuine believer. And this takes me back to the verse that I read earlier, uh, what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 20. But uh, let me get a little bit of a running start toward this, and I'll start up in verse 15. So just li listen to these words of Jesus toward the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a, good, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. You see, the point Jesus is making is that if you're the real thing, if you're genuine, there's going to be good fruit. And that's why this is being emphasized in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the very next verse goes on and says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's talking about some people who talk the talk, but it's not genuine. It's not real. It's easy for people to fake it. And the reality of the matter is you can try to fake good fruit and you might be able to successfully do that in the short term, but you cannot do that in the long term because fake fruit does not last. And that's why Jesus said in, in the vine and the branches passage in John 15 that we are to bear fruit that will last. So what he's saying there is genuine fruit. Okay, so it's kind of like someone said, bearing fruit is the acid test of a true believer. Uh, because this, this is an indication that it's not just fruit that we have manufactured on our own by willpower, but rather it's the real thing through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. So anyway, this is why this is being emphasized so much. Because you have all of these these thoughts, these truths that are being taught in Scripture. Now, I do need to clarify something, because thus far, as we've been talking about fruit, I've primarily just been focusing the attention on good deeds, all right, as being a form of fruit. And maybe I've used the phrase acts of kindness, which is kind of the same thing as good deeds. And, and this is part of the fruit, but it is only one type of fruit that believers should be bearing in our life. It is valid, you know, it certainly is, is valid that we should approach life in the fashion that Jesus did where he went around doing good. We should go and approach life in our day-to-day -day life with the radar on where we, only not, where we don't only do a good thing once every two months or once every three months, but rather this is the way we approach our life every day. The radar is on, we spot a need, 
whether it be a next door neighbor and it's something we can help address them with, or whether it be a co-worker at work that is having frustration with something and we have the wherewithal to be able to step up and help them with whatever their problem is, um, or it be a total stranger. This should be part of our DNA as believers. It was for Jesus, and it needs to be for us. But that is just like one type of fruit, acts of kindness or good deeds. Here is another type of fruit, new converts. In, in saying that, I'm referencing influencing other people to Christ. And this could be people that are right within your own home, right within your extended family. This could be coworkers. This could be total strangers. But this is part of what fruit involves. I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture that, because uh, there were several directions that could go in illustrating this in the Bible. And, and the direction I'm choosing to go um, may not, you know, connect and really drive home strongly the point with you, but this is, you know, kind of how I look at things. This, this is like a big point in my mind. I'm going to show you a verse. It is a verse that a lot of people have read who have read through the Bible. It's not one that anyone has tried to memorize that I know of um, because it's not really a verse that does a whole lot for us. It's found in Romans chapter 16, the latter part of 16. It's part of, uh, falls in the section of the greetings. Paul is done writing his letter to the church in Rome. And now at the tail end of his letter, he's just kind of saying, oh, hey, tell so-and-so hi. And tell so-and-so hi. Oh, yeah, and I forgot. Remember uh, this couple, husband and wife? Make sure you say hi from me to them as well. And, and for people who read through the Bible, and I've got a group right now that, that uh, you know, we, we are still meeting and our goal in 2021 is reading through the Bible. Well, passages like the tail end of Romans chapter 16, uh, boy, the temptation is strong there, kind of like a rock skipping on the water just to kind of hit the high points and fly over those verses because they don't really seem to say a whole lot. It's kind of like the early verses in the Bible that says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And it's just like, okay, there's nothing real convicting or inspiring or whatever. Well, this verse is different. It says, greet my dear friend, Eponidas, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. So Paul, you know, he wanted to make sure someone specifically on his behalf said hi to Eponidas or however you pronounce his name. The first convert, maybe one of Paul's first converts um, to Christ from Asia. Here's the interesting thing. A while back I was looking at this and I had some other translations up on my computer as well. And I was intrigued because they weren't very consistent in using the word convert. And I thought, all right, what's behind that? I need to study that word a little further. Now, this is a solid Bible translation, Holman's Christian Standard Bible. It uses the word convert. But when I looked at some other reliable translations, they were using another word. The literal word 
for what is found there for, for the Greek word is the word fruit. I found that very intriguing, especially in view of what we're studying here in John 15. So what Paul was saying here is he was saying, greet my dear friend Epinetus, who is the first fruit to Christ from Asia. I think the word convert is a good translation because it is consistent with the fact that Epinetus, he was a convert to Christ and he was the first one. But the actual word that was used was fruit. And it helps us to develop a better appreciation for what fruit includes. It includes converts as well. Let me show you another passage. This is another one that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians. And again, this is, well, it's you know, not at the very tail end, but midway in, this, in the last chapter. And, uh, but he's saying kind of similar type stuff. He says, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. Now, this was a little puzzling to me because this is Holman's Christian Standard Bible as well, but this time it does use the word fruits. It's the same exact word as what was in the Romans 16 passage. So why in one um, um, place did it use the word converts and in another place it's using the word fruits? I don't know. But my purpose today isn't to try to cast any um, amount of doubt on a particular translation of the Bible. My purpose today is to help open our eyes to understanding what fruit includes. It not only includes acts of kindness, it clearly includes that, but it also includes influencing people to Christ, leading people to Christ. And there's other passages that are similar to this, that, that help drive it home all the more. Here's another aspect of fruit that uh, uh, perhaps is one that when we first started reading John 15 about the vine and the branches and about bearing fruit and how God prunes us so that we'll bear even more fruit, for some uh, in here, I would imagine this was the first thing you thought of when you started thinking about spiritual fruit. You started thinking about fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5. And it's a valid thing. It actually is talking about Christian character. And this is part of what, uh, uh, when, when, we, when we remain in the vine, we abide in Christ, that not only are we going to be influencing others to Christ, not only are we going to have the radar on and we're going to be expressing, you know, acts of kindness uh, in our interactions with people, but we're also going to be um, developing Christian character in our life. Galatians chapter 5 says it like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, get this, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, cooperate with the Spirit. Because this is what the Spirit of God is doing in our life. The Spirit of God is hammering out the character of Christ in our life. 
If you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you ought to have more character traits of Christ in your life today than what you did have 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of that kind of stuff ought to be on the increase. It shouldn't be on a sustaining level, and it certainly shouldn't be on a decrease in your life. Because this is part of what the Holy Spirit does in our life when we cooperate with him, when we keep in step with him. This is part of what fruit looks like. So fruit includes good deeds. Fruit includes influencing people to Christ. And fruit includes Christian character. And there needs to be more of that. And it needs to be lasting in our lives based on what is being taught in John chapter 15. The key to all of this is that you got to stay attached to the vine. Let me say that again. The key to all of this is you got to stay attached to the vine. Because if you're not attached to the vine, you can't do anything in regards to what we're talking about here. It seems like I'm quoting somebody there. Oh, yeah, it was Jesus that said that, if we're not attached to the vine. And so we're going to talk about that next Sunday. Even though that's such a fundamental thing that we make as an assumption that we need to be attached to the vine, we're going to talk about it. We're devoting a message to it because it has critical importance. Listen, by clinging to Christ, you will bear fruit of various types like what we've talked about. It may not necessarily be automatic, but it is inevitable. You will, if you're abiding in Christ, it is inevitable you will bear fruit. And with that thought, I just want to show you this last slide. We're going to enter into our time of communion. And we know that um, during communion, we, we reflect on a couple of things. When we take the bread and we eat it, we're reminded of the body of Jesus that was nailed to the cross. And so we think about, you know, what he sacrificially gave of himself by going to the cross. When we drink the cup, we're reminded of the blood that was shed on our behalf, his blood, in order to free us from our sin. So we know that about communion. What you may not have realized is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, is also something that is found in the context of giving instructions about communion. And it says this, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So not only is this a time when we reflect on what Jesus did when he went to the cross on our behalf, but this is a time when we, in a manner of speaking, take a good hard look into a spiritual mirror at ourselves and we examine ourselves. And my challenge to you today is, in view of what we've been talking about here today, is 
to make it a part of your prayer during this time. Lord, help open my eyes to see what you see in me in regards to fruit. The existence of fruit or the lack of fruit. Lord, help me to see what you see. And just so you know, this whole idea of examining ourselves isn't something that's just supposed to be relegated to communion time. That's why I put up the second passage, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, has nothing to do uh, with communion specifically, but yet look at what it, what it says. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. So it sounds, sounds somewhat similar to the other one. This is to be something that as Christians should be part of our practice in our devotional prayer time, that we take a hard look at ourselves and we examine ourselves and we seek discernment from the Lord in regards to, Lord, what do you see? Am I a person that goes around doing good? Am I, would anyone describe me that way? Am I a person that goes around and does good? Am I a person that is truly having any kind of influence on others, influencing them toward Christ. We all are influencing people, but are we influencing them to Christ? Make that a matter of prayer. Am I a person that today is more Christ-like in my character than what I was five years ago or 10 years ago? or 20 years ago. That's what I want to challenge you to pray about. Not just during the few minutes of our time of communion, but I want to encourage you to wrestle with that and ask for God's discernment this week as you pray more about it. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word and how your word doesn't leave us in the dark, groping around trying to find our way, uncertain, as to which direction we are to be going. But rather instead, we can look at passages like the ones that we've looked at today, and we can see pretty clearly what your designed will is for us. Father, I pray that through your spirit, you will bring conviction, you will bring additional clarity um, into our lives, and that you will indeed find us keeping in step with your spirit so that you can do the work of transformation and influence through us that you desire to do. Father, we know that we can't do this kind of stuff in hopes of getting saved. It doesn't work that way. But we can do all of this kind of stuff as an expression of our gratitude for being saved. And so, Father, I pray that each and every one of us will be more diligent at doing more of it than ever before because of gratitude. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.